Welcome back to the Religions of the Ancient Mediterranean podcast. We're into the series on associations in the Greco-Roman world, these small social religious groups that provide us important insights both into social life generally and what life was like among the populace, but also give us a new angle of vision on early Christian groups and on Jews in the diaspora, on Judean immigrants who form associations in the various cities of the Roman Empire. In this, the second episode, we turn to the question of the purposes, functions, and activities of associations internally and look at three main interconnected purposes of associations relating to honoring the gods, socializing together, and also providing burial for members or recognizing the death of members. Once again, I draw your attention to the fact that much of the material I discuss in this series is based on the books I've written that you can access information about through my website at philipharland.com. There's two main books. One is Associations, Synagogues, and Congregations that was published with Fortress back in 2003. It's a good place to start to get an introduction to some of what we're talking about and more of an expansion of what we're talking about in this series in terms of how associations find a place for themselves within society, especially regarding imperial issues. The other book is more recent, Dynamics of Identity in the World of the Early Christians. That one's published with Continuum Press. It zeroes in on the whole question of how did people living within and belonging to these groups express their sense of belonging within the group? How can we understand how these groups understood their identity in relation to society at large. Both these books look at associations as well as Christian groups and Judean groups with these questions in mind. So take a look at philipharland.com. A third book that I mentioned before, I should mention again, is titled the same as this series, Associations in the Greco-Roman World, a source book. That one's not out yet, but it should be coming out in 2012 with Baylor University Press. The good thing about it is it gathers together all kinds of inscriptions that you would have a hard time finding and a hard time reading in Greek and Latin and translates them for you and brings them together in one book so that you can really get into the material for yourself. So I hope you enjoy this episode that looks at the internal activities and purposes of associations. In particular, we use uh, one inscription from Philadelphia in Asia Minor as a case study of the internal life of a particular group. In the past, it's been common for scholars who study associations to sometimes dismiss them as less than legitimate in terms of their religious activities. In other words, to say that they're just social they're not religious. This has been very common in the past and uh, for a variety of reasons. M.P. Nilsson is a very well-known scholar of Greek religion who in various works sort of dismisses associations, you could say, at least the importance of them for studying Greek religion. His focus is Greek religion and to him it's associations, it's not the place to look for understanding true Greek religion. In his study of associations devoted to Dionysus even, So the Dionysic Mysteries groups he's talking about here, he says this, and he sort of reveals his overall view of all associations in his way of dismissing them. The Dionysic Mystery Associations resemble the other very numerous associations of the Hellenistic and following age, which, under the pretext of honoring some god after whom the association was named, assembled in order to enjoy themselves and to feast. For scholars like this, he's writing in the 50s, but this idea still continues in scholarship to some degree. 
there's the compartmentalization that we've talked about, social and there's religious, and they have very specific definitions of what's religious. But it's interesting that the people who devote their whole life to studying Greek religion would have such a restrictive de definition of religion that they would start to say that associations, oh, they're just a bunch of clubs, a bunch of social groups. They're not really focused on honoring the gods. Even more recently, Ramsley McMullen dismisses worshippers of Mithras, for example, the mysteries of Mithras, as though they're just a social thing. It's all about the meal and partying and not, not really genuinely honoring the gods. And so this overall rhetoric you encounter in scholarship at times is problematic in the least. Let's talk about the cultic activities and social activities together then, because to me the, they're, they're, there's no way of separating them. So we're talking about the sacrifice and communal meal again uh, and, and as a way to honor the gods and that these associations are engaged in honoring the gods in an ongoing purposeful way. They're honoring the gods through their activities. But on top of that you have many examples of statues of gods being dedicated by associations and many, many examples of altars being uh, dedicated by associations. And obviously an altar comes to be used for sacrifice. It, it sort of underlines the fact that sacrifice is important within these groups as well as being important within society at large. We have explicit reference in some of the inscriptions you've read to sacrifices and offerings in those inscriptions you read that involve associations, and we'll come back to some of those uh, next week as well. Finally, have frequent reference uh, to festivals and banquets that are involved in connection with them. This Ismyrna that you have in your course back, Ismyrna 653, is the one where those female theologians are being thanked for their role by an, a group of initiates, an association of initiates, thanking these theologians, as they call them, for their role in the festival. These theologians are expounding the stories of the gods in the festival activities that the group had. So all of that, including that visual material we looked at, uh, is just the tip of the iceberg in terms of the evidence we have for the importance of honoring the gods within these small informal associations. But let's look at this case study, this specific inscription at more length now, the one from Philadelphia that we referred to earlier. This whole inscription becomes the foundation document for this newly formed association based within a household. It dates most likely to either the 2nd century BCE or the 1st century BCE. Dionysius has a dream in which the god, Zeus, come to him and give him instructions on what to do. The instructions are to set up this inscription and establish this whole way of doing a cult within this household association. So this whole regulation we have here is the result of his instruction, the instructions of the gods in a dream. It opens up with this. For health, common salvation, and the best reputation, the instructions which were given to Dionysius in his sleep were written down, giving access into his house to men and women, free people and household slaves. For in this house, altars have been set up for Zeus Eumenes and Hestia, his consort, for the other savior gods, and for Eudaimonia, for Plutos, god of wealth, for Arete, virtue personified, for Hugaia, health personified, for Agathetuke, Agathos Daimon, Mneme, memory personified, the Karate, the graces, and Nike, victory.
The whole thing is focused on setting up altars for all these different deities in the household in connection with this group that's being formed. Zeus has given instructions to Dionysius for the performance of purifications, the cleansings, and the mysteries in accordance with ancestral custom and what has now been written here. What is somewhat unusual in this inscription is the nature of the following the regulations that immediately follow the mention of the rites that this group engages in in honor of those gods. We don't often have this sort of information given to us, and it's hard to know to what degree is this representative of what some other associations were engaged in, and, and to what degree is it an anomaly. But there's a lot of what you could call moral prescriptions going on and proscriptions going on here, aren't there? In other words, to belong to this association, to participate in honoring the gods according to the instructions that, that Dionysius has received right, right from Zeus, in order to engage in this group, in order to belong to the group, you have to follow certain moral, behavioral sort of requirements, don't you? When entering this house, let men and women, free people and household slaves, swear by all the gods that they do not know about any deceptive action against a man or a woman, or about any drug harmful to people, and that they neither know nor use harmful spells, a love charm, an abortive drug, or contraceptive. Nor should they use any other thing fatal to children, or give advice or connive with another person about such things. Now, no one should withdraw their goodwill towards this house, and if anyone should do any of these things, or plan them, the others are neither to look the other way, nor remain silent, but shall expose and avenge the violations." So they're quite serious about this. They're saying, not only should you not engage in these things in order to belong to the group, but if there's even rumor heard of someone doing these things, you better right away go out and try and figure it out and expose what has been happening. What's the next uh, prescription or proscription that we have here? It's sexual. So we first have violations of life in some way, uh, that you can't be engaged in anything that harms life, and you can't belong to this association if you engage in certain sexual activities. Beyond his own wife, a man is not to seduce someone else's wife, whether free or slave, nor a boy, nor a virgin girl. Nor shall he advise someone else to do so. Should he connive at it with someone, they shall expose such a person, both the man and the woman, and not conceal it or keep silent about it. Let the woman and the man, whoever does any of the things written above, not enter this house. For the gods set up in it are great, and they watch over these things and will not tolerate those who transgress the instructions. The idea of the gods being judges, the ideas of the, the gods watching and being concerned about justice, the idea of the gods intervening and punishing people for doing things they shouldn't do and rewarding people for things they should do. Agdistus is the goddess that's involved here, and she's often associated with justice. So the gods need to be honored and we need to preserve the sort of purity of our honoring the gods in this association is what's being underlined. They're taking it seriously. A free woman is to be pure and not know the bed of another man, nor have intercourse with anyone except her own husband. But if she does know the bed of another man, such a woman is not pure but full of endemic pollution, internal pollution within the group and un unworthy to revere this God whose sacred things have been established here. She is not to be present at the sacrifices, nor cause offense at the purifications and cleansings. 
nor see the mysteries being performed. If she does any of these things after the instructions have been inscribed, she will have evil curses from the gods for disregarding these instructions. For the god does not want these things to happen at all, nor does he wish it. Rather, he wants obedience. So there you have an outline of these moral behavioral norms that are required in order to participate within this particular association. But the focus of all of it is so that the honoring of the God takes place properly and so that the gods are not angry with us. So we have a lot of warnings of what the gods will do to you and uh, that the gods are watching out and that if you transgress, you're going to be in trouble. And then you have this sort of finishing comment a little bit more on the positive side of what the gods will do for people who belong to this association. The gods will be merciful to those who obey and will always give them all good things, whatever things gods give to people whom they love. But if any transgress, the gods will hate such people and inflict on them great punishments. These instructions were stored with Agdistus, the holiest garden and mistress of this house. She's the goddess. That's sort of the patron deity of the house alongside Zeus. May she create good thoughts in men and women, free people and household slaves, so that they may obey the things written here. During the monthly and annual sacrifices, may those men and women who have confidence in themselves touch this stone on which the instructions of the God have been written, so that those who obey these instructions and those who do not obey these instructions may become evident. Through this act of touching the monument, you will be shown to whether, whether or not you've been obeying or not obeying. The inscription finishes with referring back to Zeus, who gave the instructions in the first place. Savior Zeus, accept the touch of Dionysius mercifully and kindly, and be gentle with him and his family. Provide good rewards, health, salvation, peace, safety on land and sea, and the inscription breaks off. We have there a list of what you've already started to learn, the, what benefactions the gods bring, what salvation is, quite down to earth here. So this whole idea is Zeus has given these instructions. The, the gods are directly involved in this association. If you study this, have a hard time saying things like Nilsson said there about the associations not really being genuinely about honoring the gods. In a way, this inscription really underlines that more so than some others. But nonetheless, I would say to you that it also holds for other associations this importance that honoring the gods has right within the social life of the group. It's not a separate issue. Uh, that, that whether or not they're religious. So we've got a glimpse then into the social and religious activities bound up together. Let's say something about the funerary activities of, of associations, which are also important. However, as I mentioned earlier, there's no such thing as funerary associations that are only for that purpose. Funerary activities are important with all, within all associations, and in some associations they're far more prevalent than in some others. That is true, as we'll soon see. Let me outline for you three main ways in which funerary activities are important in connection with these groups, uh, these associations of various kinds. And this would apply to all the different types that are formed out of those different social networks. First of all, many associations had a concern with the burial of members in some way. Only a few ca cases of collective burial are attested. In other words, where a guild has its own collective burial plot where all the silversmiths are buried here, or all the bakers are buried in this one place together. Instead of being buried with your family, in other words, you're buried with your fellow workers, and maybe your family's buried there too, 
but for virtually all associations, there's some role for burial. Batwanabakai, right? One of the Dionysiac Minads at Miletus. When she died, her fellow Minads set up a monument for her that you read, just honoring her with a monument. That is very widely tested in associations of all kinds. An association setting up the grave inscription and honoring the uh, deceased member of the group after their death. The Iobakoi inscription that you read seems to be a group of worshippers of Dionysus who are somewhat, somewhat wealthy. And burial is not on the top of their list of things to talk about over and over again when they set up their rules. However, in one sentence they finish off at least indicating to you that rites related to the burial of members is important to them. If any uh, member of the Iobakoi dies, a wreath shall be provided in his honor, not exceeding five denarii in value. And a single jar of wine shall be set before those who have attended the funeral, but anyone who has not attended may not partake of the wine. So there's going to be a wreath set up for a deceased member by the other members of the group when they die at their grave, and they're going to have a little mini honorary party for the deceased member with some wine. At the other end of the spectrum, you could say, in terms of the importance of burial, is a group at Lanuvium in Italy. So we have an extensive set of regulations, just like we have the regulations for the Yobakoid Athens. We have these regulations for the worshippers of Diana, the Roman equivalent of Artemis, and for Antinous, the lover of Hadrian that was divinized after his death. This association devoted to these two gods outlines their regulations, and more than 50% of the rules of this group relate to burial. I would suggest to you when a group has more lower class people within it, there's more of an emphasis on the burial. And when there's more upper class, there's still a, uh, some role for members taking part in the burial of other members, but not as prevalent because they can afford to get their own burial even if they don't belong to an association. It may be that some of these people wouldn't be able to afford to pay for a proper burial ritual unless they belong to this association. So let me read a little bit about this inscription. Uh, starts by just uh, outlining where they meet and that they meet in the temple of Antinous, that they're devoted to Diana and Antinous, and it outlines some of their meetings, that they meet on the birthday of Diana, they meet on the birthday of Antinous to have festivals. It then mentions some of its leaders, and then it goes into some of the bylaws, the rules that they have, that I want to read some to you to give you a sense of the prevalence of burial in this particular one that shows you how important in this case the burial of members is for this group. It was voted unanimously that whoever desires to enter this society shall pay an initiation fee of 100 sesterces and an amphora of good wine and shall pay monthly dues of five assays. It was voted further that if anyone has not paid his dues for six consecutive months and the common lot of mankind befalls him if he dies, his claim to burial shall not be considered, even if he has provided for it in his will. It was voted further that upon the decease of a paid-up member of our body, there will be due him from the treasury 300 sesterces, from which sum will be deducted a funeral fee of 50 sesterces to be distributed at the pyre, funeral pyre. The funerary rites, furthermore, will be performed. It was voted further that if a member dies further than 20 miles from town, and the society is notified, three men chosen from our body will be required to go there to arrange for his funeral. 
They will be required to render on accounting in good faith to the membership, etc. Further down. But if a member dies farther than 20 miles, just like the other one, from town, and notification is impossible, then his funeral expenses, less emulence and funeral fee, may be claimed from this society after the fact. In other words, the further away aren't able to call, give message to the members of the association that the guys died, but they've had to pay for a funeral, but they can still get some money back from the society later on. It was voted further that if a slave member of the society, so slaves belong to this group, dies, and his master or mistress is unreasonably refuses to relinquish his body for burial, and he has not left written instructions, a token funerary ceremony will be held. So if you can't, you've got one of your fellow members who happens to be a slave and their master won't let them be buried by you, then at least you'll have a little ritual together remembering the person. It was voted further that if any member takes his own life for any reason whatsoever, his claim to burial by the society shall not be considered. It was voted further that if any slave member of the society becomes free, he is required to donate an amphora of good wine. It was voted further that if any master, in the year when it is his turn in the membership list to provide dinner, fails to comply and provide a dinner, he shall pay a fine, etc. So then it's getting onto the master's role in being benefactors of the group. There may be familial connections here, but it's hard to know with this particular group. There seems to be both masters and slaves involved in the group in some way. So there's a bit of a range of social stratification. So that's sort of more than half of the inscription there involves burial. So obviously for this group, this first example of funerary activities, the burial of members is very prevalent. But for the Yobakoi, it's important, but not nearly as important. A second funerary function that we see in uh, many examples is the idea of a, the deceased, who may or may not belong to the association involved, leaving fines for violation to an association. In other words, when you set up your grave inscription back in the Roman Empire, you wanted to ensure that no one violated the grave. And there was various ways you could help to ensure that. In other words, you don't want grave robbers coming and digging you up. They had sometimes customs of putting a curse on the grave. If anyone violates this grave, Zeus will zap them dead type thing. We have many examples of that. But we also have examples of if anyone violates this grave, the, there'll be fines to pay to various groups, right? And sometimes associations are the recipients of these fines for violation on the graves. The third uh, main example of funerary activities and purposes of these associations has to do with funerary foundations. In other words, someone dies and they leave as a benefaction to an association money. Usually money that is partially to be used to celebrate the death day of the person who died. So the rich person leaves behind money so that the association as a group will come to the grave often and have a ceremony together or even a banquet together, remembering the deceased. We have many examples of this, uh, and I've picked a few examples from Hierapolis in Asia Minor, which is in the region of Phrygia that you're already familiar with. Here's one that involves the dyers. This is from the second century CE. So I'm just reading you the grave inscription so that you have a sense of how it all goes here. This grave and area belongs to Publius Aelius Hermogenes, son of Chiropinos. His son will be buried in it, his wife has been buried in it, and Hermogenes will be buried in it. 
as well, but no one else. But if someone violates this by burying someone else here, that person will pay 2,500 denaria to the most holy treasury, but it's 1,600 denaria to Apollo, the god Apollo. So Apollo's helping out and guarding the, from the violation of this tomb, right? And 800 denaria to the one prosecuting the case. So you say, if, if you can find people violating my grave, you're going to get 800 denaria from it. The guild of dyers will supervise the grave. He has provided the grave crowning funds as contained in the inscription about the grave crowning funds in order that the grave crowning funds be given each year in the amount of 1,000 denaria. It breaks off a bit and says, a copy of this inscription has been put into the archives. Another way of ensuring that violation doesn't happen is to have a copy of the inscription put into the civic archives. So there you have the dyers as recipient of this benefaction, this foundation at the death of a person. The person who died is not necessarily a member of the association. Right? So it's a bit different than some of the other things we were talking about. Another one from Hierapolis. This one comes from after 212, probably based on the names in the, in the document. Grave of Aurelius Zodocus Epicratus. Now I leave behind 150 denaria to the guild of nail workers for their yearly grave crowning ceremony. But if they fail to provide the service, then the guild of coppersmiths will do so. But if they fail to provide the service, the funds are to be given to the purple dyers for supervision of the grave. It is not lawful for anyone else to be buried here, and if this is violated, the offender will pay 500 denaria to the most sacred organization of elders, 500 denaria to the most holy treasury of the city, and the same to the one prosecuting the case. A copy of this inscription was stored in the archives, and nothing will be given, and it breaks off. But it's interesting here, they have it, that the yearly celebration at the grave, remembering the deceased, is going to be done by the nail workers, but if they don't live up to what they need to do, another guild, the coppersmiths, will be given the money, and if they don't do it, then the purple dyers will be given it. This is insurance, right? No matter what, this guy's going to be remembered at the grave once a year is what he's really trying to ensure. So that's the third example of funerary functions and, and activities of associations.